Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I know what you're thinking. We're all the annoying idiots. You know, that's mean. I shouldn't call them annoying. They're friends of mine. Destructive idiots. Hey, everybody. I'm solo in the studio. This is Pat Bulger with the Pack Filler Podcast. After last week, the punishment episode, I decided to give my glassware the evening off. And if you've listened to that podcast, you know what I'm talking about. Oh my God! Thank you for the feedback on that on the punishment episode, you guys. I've, we've been uh, we got a lot of commentary on what happened through that podcast and everything that went together, and if it was a a viable alternative for the original punishment. Still waiting on that one to happen. Kind of see if uh, you know Carson ever gets this side of the I don't know side of the what the hell the mountains. <laughs> I didn't think that one through. And uh, see if we can do that rim break versus disc break challenge here Sunday. Hopefully we'll get that one together. But, you know, now that the weather's crappy, here we are in the great northwest, and there's no sense in doing it now. It'd just be a skid contest, and that's not going to work. But uh, all good feedback from you guys. A lot of people seem to have liked the, the live stream of the video. Got commentary on that one. Uh, you guys seem to have listened to the whole way through, even though it was like an hour and 20-some-odd minutes of a podcast. Got a little out of hand there, but um, it's a lot of fun. If you want to check it out, it is still posted to our YouTube channel, and you are welcome to head on over there and uh, just watch the atrocities happen as they went throughout the evening there. Um, speaking of of all the things going on, uh, Seattle Bike Town show is underway. It is uh, We did our first weekend of filming about two weeks ago. Uh, thanks to our friends for hosting us over there, um, and we're going to have some 
that's going to piece together in the video place pieces as we go there. Probably going to head back there in the spring and final, finish up things so we can make sure we get uh, really good footage of the riding there and, and piece that all together. The audio from that show as a podcast, a standalone podcast. We'll be releasing that one next week. So you can get kind of a feel, be it a, a preview of coming attractions if you want to to uh, give it a listen to see what you think about what the, that actual episode is going to be like. It's interesting going from town to town, our first episode in Bend, Oregon, where accessibility is definitely uh, not an issue at all, where you're able to you know travel anywhere, leave your door from your bike and ride anywhere. In Seattle, we were wondering about that being one of the main issues, and it doesn't seem to be for the locals, and uh, it's always fun to get that from their perspective. And the idea had come out of that that when we do finally do a, a bike towns here in Spokane, Washington, we should have people from those towns we've done episodes in come here and critique where we live and where we ride and our accessibility and our variety and our coffee and beer. So I think that's going to be something we're going to do. We're going to piece that together, and I think that'll be something we'll do uh, during the cycling season of 2020. We'll go from there. So um, I think that's going to be a good one. Continuing with previews of coming attractions, I will be live at the Bike Hub in Spokane at their south location this Saturday, the 26th, at 6 p.m. So if you're out and about and you want to come by, a man by the name of Todd Shumlick, I hope I got his last name right, but the guy's pretty impressive. He's with Performex Racing, and he's also with the Norco Factory team, to the best of my knowledge. And we're going to be talking to him about training, about riding, about skills, and all those things. And we're going to be live. I'm going to be having a couple beers. So Bike Hub South location, put it on your calendar, the 26th at 6 p.m., Hey, let's get to the podcast itself. Pat McQuaid. I almost felt like calling him Sir Patrick McQuaid. It, it felt like that. It felt like to an extent, you know, when you, you read about somebody and you see the images of them in magazines and maybe you look at short video clips of them and they've achieved some sort of a status that you think it makes them I don't want to say different in a bad way, but it makes them, yeah, different in terms of where you are in your notoriety or fame or, or you know, simplicity of life. Pat McQuaid was the president of the Union Cyclist International for many years, uh, UCI, some of us know it as. He had his hand in a lot of uh, very important decisions affecting the sport. And you might have your opinions on what those decisions were and the effectiveness of those decisions. Um, and I, of course, approached this interview with, with Pat in a... I was hesitant at first, to be honest. I didn't want to insult him. I'm sure he's probably dealt with enough negative opinions and controversial subject matter in in multiple ways and I know that he wasn't necessarily doing it to promote anything he was doing it because he's a good guy and he was passionate about the sport is passionate about the sport and he was up up for talking to me about it so he gave me 40 minutes of his time and I I I was glad the way the discussion went. It followed a path of, it, it was very relaxed. It was very open. He was able to talk about his life and his cycling career and tell some of the stories about what brought him to the point 
of something as you know gigantic as being president of the world governing body of cycling. And um, I, th- I thought it was a good talk. I wish I could have gone longer. I didn't want to waste his time. You might hear that towards the end of the podcast. I, he, he said he had probably 30 to 40 minutes, and, and I wanted to keep it to that. But uh, it was an interesting discussion, and it didn't, might not necessarily cover all the hot-button issues and super, oh, I'm pissed off about this, answer this question, and all that kind of stuff, because that's not what this show's about. This show is about talking to people about the sport they love. And uh, he was willing to, to discuss the doping issues that he had to deal with as UCI president. So I hope you guys get out of it. What I, what I got out of it, it was a really interesting conversation and it's really enjoyable to have some platform like this where you get to pull back the curtain and you get to talk to people and realize that they're people. Um, I've, I've been able to talk to many of my heroes in the sport and to just the simplicity of receiving a phone number of somebody that you think Wow, they have a phone. Jeez, you know, I just, I, I thought, I don't know, they don't do that kind of stuff. This, you know, this freaking famous cyclist, or you know, is, is approachable. And um, so there we go, you guys. Um, let me know what you think. Pat McQuaid on the Pack Filler Podcast. Today's guest has been involved in every aspect of the bike racing world. First, he's a two-time winner of the Tour of Ireland, as well as multiple other victories. And second, he is also well-known for his time as president of the UCI from 2005 to 2013. Let's welcome to the show, Pat McQuaid. How are you, sir? Uh, very good indeed, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hey, you know, I whenever I do these type of interviews, I always like to start with a little perspective. Most people probably recall you specifically from your time serving uh, with the UCI, but... Um, you come from a large cycling family uh, and large amounts of people involved within that. Yeah, I do indeed. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm the eldest of 10 children, seven boys and three girls. <laughs> and, uh, and um, most of the boys all raced cycling. My father raced before me, my uncle raced, you know, alongside him as well. And um, so the cycling goes back, back in, back in the family, back to the mid forties. Um, which is not today or yesterday, but um, <laughs> and then we as we as children took it up after the parents and and continued in, in you know in in competition at different levels and and uh, you know and then I went into administration after I finished my cycling career so and then continued in the sport but I mean my my brothers have been involved I've got, I've got brothers who are agents for bikes and distributors of bikes and other brothers who bike shops and. You know, so when we manage teams, and I've got sons now that I have a son who's an agent of a lot of the top riders, and um, you know, so the the family are involved, and I have a cousin, and rather a nephew also who's an agent of of quite a few of the top pros as well. So, all in all, we're we're we sort of enveloped the cycling world fairly heavily. All right, yeah. Was it always something that was expected, or did you guys go willingly into the sport? Um, we went willingly into the sport. I mean, it was it was something when when we were young children. My my father was racing. I remember seeing my father racing. I saw him in the Grand Prix of Ireland in, in the Phoenix Park in Dublin in nineteen sixty one. I was eleven, twelve at the time, and he was forty, and he he was still racing. 
So, I mean, that was quite impressive for a young lad of that age, 10, 10 11 years senior fellow, you know, competing at a high level and winning races, one of you. So it was, you know, the, the, the dinner table talk, much to the annoyance of the three sisters, the dinner table talk and the lunch table talk every day was about cycling and about what was happening in, in, in the world. My father had quite a lot to do with the first um, Irish professional that succeeded in, in Francie Elliott, you know, because he competed against them when Elliott was a, a young star rising in, in Ireland and my father was sort of helped him to get to France and, and helped on his career and, and so forth, you know. So, um, you know, and he then became an idol of mine. I'd met him several times when he came home in the winter. He used to come in and, and visit, visit us in the house and and so forth. And he was an idol of mine. And I used to follow him on the at that time, but no internet or anything like that. You would just get small little reports in yeah. the Irish newspapers about um, the Tour de France and, you know, the classics and, and Tour of Spain and all that. And I would follow that on, on that li- this little report. That's all we had those days. You know, it's completely different today, you know, but... Um, that's we were fed on that, and um, that kept us. You know, the interest was always there, so it was just a natural thing that we, we as as the boys would go into cycling. Yeah, you did. You you mentioned some of the riders being able to, to, I guess, break into that professional scene and things like that. Um, give me an idea of what Ireland cycling scene was like at that time, and and how accessible <clears throat> that that next level was. It was it was it wasn't accessible. It was difficult to access. There's no doubt about it. Because in in the, you're, you're thinking of the days before internet, the, day, the yeah. days before um, cheap travel and all that sort of thing. You know, so to go to the continent of Europe was a major expedition. You know, and a major uh, travel, be, be it by plane or be it by boat, wherever it might be, and to actually emigrate to live on the continent um, was you know even in those days. Um, when you when you consider that you know in the in the fifties and the forties and fifties, uh, the the Irish built most of the motorways in in, in England and, and the railways and all that sort of thing, you know the underground and everything, and a lot of those people who emigrated to England at that time stayed in England and never returned, and um, because it was you know they, they were gone and were forgotten and you you know communication with, with Ireland behind was 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 sort of slow and difficult and so they tended not to to return home and so forth you know so that was the type of of emigration that happened out of ireland this is normal emigration for people going to work and all that back in the 40s and 50s when work wasn't available in ireland um and it was somewhat similar going to the continent was even thought of as further away again so to for a young lad like Shay Elliott in in 19 early 50s it was um, to take you know to, you know pack up and go over to live in France and race in France um, with with a French club and, and 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 then break it into the professional ranks was unusual and um, there were only a couple of English were doing Tom Simpson was around the same time yeah. um, but there were only a few Englishmen doing the same thing because likewise for England to go to the continent was was unusual as well you know. Unlike today, where you can, uh, the pros, a lot of the top pros would even live in England or even live in Ireland and race in Europe, you know, because they can jump on a plane and be there in an hour. Um, travel was a lot different and, and movement around Europe was a lot less than it is today. So it, it was, those were big moves that those guys were making when they're making decisions like that. And, and, and indeed, many, many, many of them, many, you know, in those years, the 50s and 60s, actually emigrated, you know, or moved over to France to race. And didn't some of them didn't last a week, and they were back home, homesick after a week, you know, because they couldn't cope with the language, couldn't cope with the different culture, you know, every sort of thing, you know. So, or, you know, where, where one or two or some were successful, 
um, many failed. And that w- it wasn't really until the time of, of Kelly and Roach, um, yeah. which would have been the early 70s, uh, when Kelly, um, in the mid-70s, when Kelly went to, to France, it was becoming more accessible then. There were more English speakers in the professional peloton in Europe, like Phil Anderson, uh, Le Mans came soon afterwards, uh, Robert Miller, people like that. Um, and so it was it was easier then in the, in the mid 70s and and it is indeed easier even now for for riders if a rider has ability now a young rider um from Ireland or from England or from America wherever he can move into Europe fairly quickly and if if he can if he has the ability he'll make his way up to the ranks fairly quickly you know yeah you mentioned Sean Kelly and uh, you were a part of that i i think it's somewhat known the the south africa trip uh, that um ended up with you guys unfortunately unable to compete in the olympics um yeah. what was that you know if you could give a quick version of that trip for those who haven't talked to or heard about it i i was fortunate enough to talk to Sean a while ago about it but uh what did that yeah. do and how did that what kind of an impact did that have on your career well i mean first of all um I was a couple of years older than Sean. I, you know, I had I'd, I'd been to university or was going to university, had a university education, and so forth. I'd followed South African affairs and, and politics and so forth, and so you know, in South Africa for a good many years. And it was also a very strong anti-apartheid movement movement in Ireland at that time. Um, but I had a view that you know, I, I sort of had a view that in relation to the anti-apartheid movement. Um, I couldn't. I, I found it difficult to understand why business could operate freely between Europe and wherever and, and, and South Africa, but yet sport was picked on to to, to be yeah. the, the weapon for the anti-apartheid movement to try and block movements of sports people going back and forth. And I didn't really think that was really fair. That was just as a background. Yeah. Um, what happened was that we we got an invite in, in what was it, 1975 Tour of Ireland, which I won, and there were two Scottish riders riding us, and they had been to South Africa the previous year and ridden this race in the rapporteur. So they explained the race to us, they explained that um, they, want, they were going to go back this year and they wanted to bring a couple of other riders with them and asked us, would we go? And myself, Sean, and my brother Kieran, making up a five-man team. And so when, when we got the details of the race in particular, that it was a very, very hard race, it was two weeks long, um, t- I think 10 or 11 of the stages were double stages. In other wow. words, you were racing from half eight in the morning till six o'clock in the evening. One stage would be half eight till 11, and the next one started at two and finished at six. Oh. And this went on for two weeks. So, and it was a hard course and hard racing. And we looked at the calendar and, and, and saw that from sort of once the Tour of Ireland was over in mid August, the calendar in Ireland stopped completely, and there was no racing for us until the following March. And then the Olympic Games were in June, and we felt sure we would be going to the Olympic Games. So we thought this race was on in late October, and we we figured it would be a great something to keep us training, keep us motivated through the, the month of September and October to prepare for it. Then riding a very high-level race for two weeks would mean we would go into the new year with a high level of fitness, and then we could work on that um, to build up for, for the Olympic Games in June. Um, and it was from a sport in a, initially in a sporting for sporting reasons we we decided we would go and we knew also that by going out there in 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 October November when we normally wouldn't be around or wouldn't be seen or you wouldn't see you know cyclists that you race with all year long you don't see them from from September through till March because they they're they're in their homes they're you know, yeah. with their families and, and whatever you know and um, so it would be we wouldn't be missed or we wouldn't be noticed that we were out of the country. And we knew going there that um, 
that the race was not on the UCI calendar and therefore um, if we were caught riding it, we could get suspended. We were aware of that going out, but we didn't think. And so we went out and rode the race and it was it was true. It was a very hard race. Um, I won two stages in it. Sean was eighth overall. Um, and we, you know, we, we, we certainly, you know, got plenty of hidings in, in, in the two weeks we were riding there. Um, and it, it turned out one day that, you know, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, they were on the second honeymoon and they arrived <laughs> in a little town and we arrived in and a, a, a journalist that was with them following the British journalist that was with them, you know, knowing, yeah, Richard Burton was hugely interested in sport, wanted to bring him along to the race. He contacted the organizer. The organizer said, no, no, no. He says, you know, you know, you know as well as I do that we, we don't want to give publicity to this situation. And anyhow, he then took photographs the following day at the start and wired them over to the UK and the UK, his Daily Mail in the UK sent them to British Cycling and British Cycling immediately identified us and, and then the whole thing broke, hell broke loose back in, back in Ireland. And we ended up getting banned from the Olympic Games in 1976 um, because of a lot of political pressure from the anti-apartheid movement and everything on the, on the International Olympic Committee. We didn't get banned from international competition. I mean, we, we rode the milk race, which took place in May of 76, um, but we didn't ride the Olympics, which took place in, in June or July. And so Sean then, um, he, I mean, he was hugely successful young rider at the time and, and you know myself and himself had spent quite a lot of time together all you know from from his the beginning of his career every team i rode in an irish team he was on the same team and at two tours of ireland i won he was on the team with me as well um and we were quite close and uh he said look you know if we're not going to go to the olympics once the milk race is over there'll be nothing much left in ireland i'm going to go to france to 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 race in france and um, for the rest of the season and so he did so, and he won something like 20 races that year, including the Amateur Tour of Lombardy. And uh, he, that's how he ended up getting his contract to go into the professional ranks. So it could be said, okay, for me it meant I didn't I didn't compete in the Olympics, which was you know with, um, something which I would you know obviously um, not be too happy about yeah. because otherwise I would have gone. Um, and yet my two brothers, Kieran and Oliver, both went to different Olympic Games after that. And my cousin John also competed in Olympic Games after, the, after that as well. But so be it. Um, Sean, you could possibly say, and he would possibly agree, that w- without that, if, had he gone to the Olympic Games, he may not have had the success in France. Yeah. He, may, he, he probably would have stayed, you know, once the Olympics were over, um, he would have enjoyed the Olympics and his season would have been finished. Yeah. And he would have then started the following year. So he may never have had that success, which got him his professional contract. So wow. and let him on the way. So it had a positive benefit for him from that point of view. Although likewise, he likewise would have would have liked to have competed in the Olympic Games. Wow. So basically we could blame Richard Burton or we could thank Richard Burton is well, what you're saying. Well, either way, yeah. <laughs> either way, whatever way you want to do it. You know? no, it's, I, I never had any re- real regrets about it because I, I was hugely interested in the politics in South Africa. Yeah. And from the visit there, it even increased my interest. I've From that day on, which is now 40 years ago, I've had a huge interest in the whole development of South African politics from from um, uh, Mandela and, and the whole way it's developed since then. And I still have a huge interest in the country and I've visited it many times since. Wow. And I love the country, you know. So it, it it's, it's not something I hugely regret from that point of view, you know. Yeah. So then, 
you competed for a couple years with Viking as a professional, um, and then what brought about the shift to your path to working with the UCI directly? Well, I'm, uh, I went, as I said earlier on, I went to university and trained to be a physical education teacher. So teaching and, you know, and, and, and sport and physiology of sport and kinesiology and all that type, all those, those different disciplines in, in sport were things that I'd studied in college and had a big interest in. And when I was even racing, you know, after I qualified when I was racing, I used to run training, um, you know, I'd, I'd run fitness classes in during the winter in, in, in the gym in the school I was working in and everything for cyclists and for the club cyclists locally and all that type of thing, you know. And so I always had an, an interest in that. And then uh, what happened was when uh, when um, I got, I, the last race I rode was in 1982, I think in Ireland, the Grand Prix of Ireland, and I finished second in it. And I climbed off and I'd said beforehand, this is, I'm retiring at the end of this and so forth. And one of the officials, um, actually Jojo McCormick, whose, whose sons, Paul and Alan, yeah. raced for many, many years and still live in the United States. Yeah. Um, he he was an official in the Federation at the time. And he came to me and he says, Pat, you're finishing racing. Is that right? I said, yeah. Well, he says, Would you, we'd, I'd like you to take, uh, we'd like you to take a junior team to the Junior World Championships in East Germany in, in August. Will you do that? And I said, yeah, okay. I was, I was teaching at the time, so it was off for the summer. It was free for the summer. I said, yes, I'll do that. And so I then started working with these juniors and preparing them for that, um, for that Junior World Championships and, and it went from there, and then when it came back from there, the federation asked me would I be interested in becoming a national coach, and I negotiated with them, and wow. and um, I said I would, and, and I then became the national coach. That was '82, um, for the for the Olympic team that went to Los Angeles in '84, wow. and so I managed that team, and it was a pretty successful team. We had a pretty, pretty successful. We didn't win gold medals or anything like that, but. We, we were one of only two th- teams that finished all of its riders in the Olympic Games road race. I think uh, uh, three, maybe Ireland, Sweden, and, and the United States were the only ones who finished a full, complete team. And, and, and we, we were up there. I think Martin Ailey was 20th or something like that. Paul Kimmage also rode that as well. Um, and so I, I, I looked after that squad. And, and in, in doing that, you know, I brought them to races, brought them to the milk race a couple of years, brought them to Scotland, brought them to international races. I was sort of not full-time, but near enough full-time as, as national coach. Um, and then... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, 
what happened there after that then I ended up um, in 84 after the Olympics getting into race organisation um, there was a colleague of mine Alan Rushton who had been the PR manager of the Viking team that I'd ridden with and um, he was actually Irish but he lived in the UK and worked in the UK and he had started a, a television series in, in the UK in 84 on um, over city centre races, you know, short circuit city centre races sponsored by Kellogg's to us. Okay. And I, you know, these were live live on television on, on Channel 4, you know, four or five, sub, sub, you know, subsequent Mondays, you know, in, in, in the month of August or something like that, or month of July, I think it was. And so they, they created a lot of interest in, 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 in cycling on television because at that stage, up to then, there was very little cycling coming on television, you know, on a regular basis. Um, not like now where you can access, you yeah. know, between Eurosport and all the different channels, you can access cycling every day now on television. But in those days, it wasn't a huge amount. And these city centre races were really spectacular and interesting. And I had the idea... I, I, you know, I knew Sean and Stephen very well, and they had risen in the years prior to this or around about that time. They'd become number one and two in the world, and yet they had never raced in Ireland. What Stephen did as an amateur, he won the, the what was called a health race at the time, the Ross Talton at the time, um, and Sean had raced as an amateur as well. But neither of them had put, set foot in Ireland uh, as a competitor since they turned pro. And so I contacted contacted Alan and, and knowing that Kellogg's also had a big market in Ireland as well, I didn't see any reason why Kellogg's mightn't be interested in putting on one of these races, adding one race the following year for Ireland. And so uh, I contacted him and he said, funny enough you should say that, I was thinking the very same myself. <laughs> um, and he says, Could, would you, do you think Kelly and Roach are right? He says, I'll get them to right, don't worry. Um, I know them <laughs> well enough and I know that they'll, they'll turn up along with some of and they bring some of the pros with them as well, European pros. And so we started working on that then, and, and we had a hugely successful race in, in the city centre in Dublin. In, it was in the end of August, um, just the end of August 84, just after the Montreal Olympics, um, or the Los Angeles Olympics, rather, you know? Yeah. And um, it was a huge success, and Irish television covered it live. And the, the producer on Irish television was delighted with it, and he said, look, you know, this is great. We'll do to do more of this, you know. And we we approached them and sat down and we said, look, what we really want to do, what we'd love to do, and we've had chats about this, would be to um, organise a tour of Ireland, a professional tour of Ireland, yeah. you know, with, with television and helicopters in the air and motorbike cameras and all that. And he he was really this this producer was very, you know, very uh, interested in, in in pushing the boundaries. And they, you know, Irish television had never done anything like this before, but just really excited them to have a go at it. And we said we would provide, look, we'll provide the motorbikes, we'll pay for the helicopters, um, you just provide the cameramen for the helicopters and the cameramen to go on the back of the motorbikes, and, you know, away we go type of thing. And the live, obviously the the, the facilities for the live show and all that. And he said, RT, Irish television decided they would go with it. And then... We started selling that on the market in in, uh, in late eighty four, early eighty five, yeah. and got Nissan to sponsor us in the end. And um, that then that was in eighty five. The first Nissan Classic was run in Ireland, which was a huge success. Likewise, with crowds on the road, you know, huge crowds on the roadside and the finishes and the starts and all that sort of thing. 
in 87 of course it was completely crazy altogether yeah. because Roach had won the Tour de France and the uh, Tour of Italy and the Tour de France and when and the world championship he came over as world champion to ride at Nissan as well and so I mean it was completely mega and it was completely <laughs> crazy on the road that was huge and, you know, and as well as that all of the pro the European pros it, it, the race got a great, great reputation within, with very quickly within the European professional peloton as a race that was really good to go to, um, really safe on the roadside, no, tra- no traffic uh, coming against you and that because the race was so popular and so well known that when it went along the roadside, the cars just stopped and the people got out on the side of the road to cheer them on. <laughs> Nobody would dare drive against them and that, you know, um, because they were too interested in watching them go by. And um, so, and also good hotels and um, good conditions that they had, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, as a result, then we didn't have any much difficulty getting the best riders to come. I mean, Le Mans rode a couple of years, Armstrong rode, I think, in '92 or so, when he was a young, 20-year-old Texan and just turned pro, I think, at the time from yeah. Motorola. Um, and you know, all of the top riders came over and rode it, and the top teams rode it now. So it was, it was you know, Van der Aarden, it was great duels yeah. between Van der Aarden and Andrew Van der Poel and Kelly and all that. And it was, that went on, that kept me occupied until, and, and then we ran, likewise, we, we ran a similar race in the UK, the Kellogg's Tour, and other races that we ran. So I spent a period of 10 years or so involved in that scene. And then um, I was still involved with the Federation and the Federation uh, I, I was then heavily involved as such in 93 and 94 we're bringing the Tour de France to Ireland in 98 um, I was actually working on Tour de France coming into the UK in 94 along with Alan Rushton my colleague and um, from there uh, you know the, the germ of an idea of bringing a Tour de France to Ireland came up and I knew we, we couldn't do what we were doing in the UK in 94, which was starting the race in northern France, bringing it through the tunnel into UK and back through the tunnel into, the tunnel was only just newly opened at the time, back in the UK into Europe. Uh, type thing, you know, with a short crossing and all that. Ireland has a, an 18-hour boat crossing to, to mainland Europe, so it had to be a, a grand apart. It had to be a start where yeah. they come in at their leisure the week before, they start the race, they ride the race, and then it was our responsibility to get them back from Cork into northern France overnight, more or less. Wow. And so that project started, and it was a big success, with the exception that 98 was the, the famous Festina yeah. um, tour, where the guys, you know, there the was oh, yeah. a car stopped in, 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 in northern France with a load of drugs in the back on his way over to on his way over to the start in Ireland. And it didn't affect the start in Ireland, thankfully, because the story didn't break out or blow really until the race got back to France. But it still had a, an effect on, on on the atmosphere afterwards in Ireland as well. But I mean it was a huge big success in Ireland now. And then the, I became president of the Federation of Home in ninety seven, I think it was, and spent four years as president of the Federation. And during that time, um the Federation proposed me to go onto the board of the UCI, and which I did in 98, 97, 98, I think it was. And um, I went on the board, I was on the board for eight years, and then became president and was on for the eight years as president. So that in, in 10 or 15 minutes is my whole life story. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the UCI job, that um, talk about 
um, a high profile, pro- I can imagine incredibly high stress <laughs> type of a yeah, position. What would you say are Go some on. some of your, your proudest accomplishments that you uh, that you achieved during that time period? Yeah. Well, I could, I could safely say that, I mean, the sport today, um, for a relate back to the sport today, I think is in a very good place. Yeah. Um, in terms of of, of the the anti doping in particular, and, and and the lack of doping in the peloton now, and, and the fact when you're looking at twenty two year twenty, you know twenty year olds winning races and twenty one year olds and even nineteen year olds like the Belgian guy, Evan Paul. Yeah. Um, and you know Bernal at twenty two, the youngest ever winner of Tour de France. It shows that you know th- these these young kids can do what they have to do and be successful taking drugs because the young, there's no doubt the youngsters coming in today aren't interested or don't want to know about, about drugs or anything like that because they've read so much or they've heard so much and the people around them and the officials around them and everything, and managers and all that have, have experienced the bad times. And I became president at the, in the middle of the bad times, I would have to say. Yeah. Um, I mean, I became president in 2005 and in 2006, Operation Puerto blew up just before the Tour de France. And, uh, you know, I remember going up to the start of the Tour de France and two or three teams were pulled out overnight. Um, Astana and Liberty Securus and I don't know who else. Um, and so I had to deal with all of that. And then there was, you know, the, the, the Contador situation uh, when when he was, you know, the the, the famous situation with the Clembuterol and all that, yeah. that was on my watch as well. And of course, um, you know, Valverde as well, who was in, implicated in Puerto was on my watch. And you know quite a lot of them, and of course, it, the biggest of it all was was Lance Armstrong, and and that I mean, and Floyd Landis, of course, as well. I mean, Floyd Landis was the first yellow jersey of the Tour de France ever to be declared positive and to, to have the race taken from him. Yeah, and it was. I, I mean, I remember the I remember the day well when when. Um, when it sort of happened, I had been on a plane going to Munich and then I was making a transfer in Munich to head to, I might have been Beijing or something like that afterwards. And uh, I opened up my phone when I got to Munich and uh, there was a message from our UCI lawyer and it said, would you ring me as soon as you get this message? <laughs> so I rang him and I didn't really, you know, that would be, wouldn't be very unusual for to get a message like that, you know, but I rang him anyway and he, the first thing he says to me is, are you alone? Oh no! And I said, I am. I've just got off a plane and I'm alone. Yeah, he says, well, uh, I have some bad news for you. And straight away, I knew this. This is Tour de France. Something to do with somebody positive on Tour de France. And he says, we've a positive on the Tour de France. And then when he said that to me, I knew it had to be a podium. It's not. Oh. It wasn't somebody who was 15th overall or 20th overall or something. It had to be the podium. And I says, who is? And he said, the other jersey. Oh. And you know, I said, okay, well what do we do now? And he said, well, the, we, we follow the rules and we have to inform the team. We have to inform the rider. We have to inform the national federation. And that's all we do until then the B sample situation comes in and we have to go through the testing of the B sample and then it's made public or something, you know, so we don't make any announcements about it. That is the UCI. And I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll say nothing to nobody. And it turned, and I didn't, and it turned out, 48 hours later that the team actually put the announcement out because they just couldn't hold it because I mean, Landis was riding riding some small races up in Belgium, Criterium races in Belgium and suddenly he didn't turn up for them 
And so people were asking, well, why, you know, he's getting a big contract at registration. Yeah. He's not here. Where is he? And so forth. And he had disappeared off the face of the earth. Um, and so the team had to put a statement out in the end saying that he'd been positive and whatever, you know. Now, once that, once that became public, my phone didn't stop for 24, 48 oh, hours. God. And when I say 48 hours, I mean day and night because I was getting calls from all over the states, which would be coming through in my nighttime and I was trying to get some sleep. And then during the day, they were from Europe, or they were from you know South America, they were from Australia, they were from you know everywhere. Yeah. Um, and it just was it was wild, you know. So they were they were stressed. That was a very very stressful period, all of that. And then of course, the biggest one of all was Armstrong. Then the whole Armstrong affair, yeah. which I had to deal with, and which I was president of during that whole time, and dealing with Usada and dealing with Armstrong and dealing with the, you know the the, the anti doping scenario and whatever. Um, so there was a, I had to deal with all of that and I did deal with it and and then the other thing the other issue I had a big problem with was with ASO the organised of the Tour de France yeah. who I was at war with for two and a half years um, because they were trying to dictate the basically they were trying to dictate that they wanted to invite whoever they wanted into their races and they didn't accept the UCI rules of the world of the Pro Tour which it was at the time which stated that they were obligated take the top 18 teams and that the top 18 teams were obligated to go to the race and they didn't like that situation at all because they preferred to to, you know to to invite whoever they wanted and so forth you know so um that that was a very difficult war because i was against you know they, they, they were sort of putting the story out in france that the uci was trying to take over the tour de france and whatever which was pure rubbish um and they had you know i was a war with ASO, they organized the Tour de France, the biggest race in, in, in the world, with the French Cycling Federation, who were supporting ASO, with the French Olympic Committee, who were supporting ASO, with the French <laughs> Minister of Sport, who was supporting ASO, all of them, you know. And uh, it was, a, again, a very, very difficult period, and all full of legal cases and legal yeah. arguments and legal stories and every sort of, you know. But we eventually got through that, too, anyway, and we, we eventually sat down with myself and, and, and in, it was Jack Rogg, actually the president of the International Olympic Committee at the time, um, who brokered a, a meeting between UCI and ASO. And uh, we, we sorted, sorted the situation out and settled that. But it, it was, I say, it went on for the best part of two years. We were trying to protect the teams and, and protect the team's rights. They were saying, you know, if ASO came along to a team and said, oh, we, we don't want you in Tour de France this year, well, that team, you know, his sponsors invested a lot of money in the yeah. team in the hope, that, in, in, in you know, in the hope that he's going to get into the fans. And, and it's just at the whim of an organizer whether he gets in or not, which is why we have that 18 team regu- regulation that they must go to give the sponsors some security and security of tenure. That if a sponsor is investing something like 10 or 15 million euro or 20 million euro in a team um, in the year, he needs some continuity. He needs to know that. That, um, that that he'd be able to compete in the big races and so forth, you yeah. know. So just what the whole basis of the argument was. Um, and but during all at that time, I mean, the the fight against doping was the biggest issue that there was. And I I was coming from my background as a, as a PE teacher, coming from my background as a as as a you know sports administrator, as a sort of a a, a national cyclist, as you would say. Um, and never having 
recourse to drugs and never ha- never having had the need to recourse to drugs in, in the, the events I wrote. I mean, I never wrote it at the top level in, in Europe as such, you know, in Tour de France or anything like that. But so I, I very much had a, a, an approach to sport, which was that it should be fair for everybody and, and it should be an equal playing field for everybody. And, and, you know, cheating is something that I would feel very strongly against. And so I, I built up our anti-doping department with, from a budget of what was it, something like 600,000 euro a year um, when I took over to 4 million euro a year wow. when I left. And um, in doing that, I introduced a biological passport, which I think is one of the strongest um, elements that we have in the fight against doping. Um, no needle policy within the teams. Um, I introduced that. Um, you know, so a lot of, a lot of, you know, I, I set up the anti, the, the independent anti-doping agency of, 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 which is attached to UCI, but it's a completely independent agency and uh, operating in, independently. So all of those things have, um, over, over a couple of years, and it's taken a couple of years to get through to everybody that, you know, there is no place for doping and that, you know, if you're, if you're stupid enough to go down that road today, the chances are, you know, you're going to get caught. Whereas before that, um, the chances of getting caught were minimal. Yeah. Um, but now, now they're quite high. Yeah. Uh, so th- that, that would be the, the things I would, I would look back on at that, that I've achieved. And as I set the port, the sport on a path where it's arrived at today, which is, which is of a, of a very, you know, one of the leaders in anti-doping yeah. of, of sport and one of the cleanest sports that there is around. So I know I've only got you for a few more minutes, but there's a couple things going on with UCI, a couple specific hot-button topics going on right now, and I'd just like your opinions on them. Number one is the uh, the concepts of women's cycling and the struggles for race pay and equality there. And the other one is the more recent one where UCI taking under the umbrella the, the categories of e-bikes and virtual racing. I, you know, What are your thoughts on, on those kind of topics? Well, the, the women's one is something I supported all along, and I was I was instrumental in setting up the women's World Cup, you know, the, you know, when when I was president as well, um, and I think it is something which which needs developing and something which you know certainly, and it's not just I I've, I've, I also noticed like in certainly over in Europe, um, emphasis on women's sport is coming more and more important and more and more prevalent, not just cycling but all all areas of sport like even rugby and soccer and everything um, the, 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 the national federations and the international federations, European federations of those sports are giving a lot more emphasis to, to women's, women in, within their sport and I think that's a good thing and, and I think the more, the more we can do to, to, you know, to create a, a high level of women's cycling it'll always be, it'll always be different than the men's cycling because it's, it's an endurance sport and so it's, you're never going to get a situation where women could be racing over 250 kilometers in you know the same as the men did in in Harrogate recently you know in, in world championships but I do I do believe that it's it's the UCI's responsibility to try and set the framework for this to develop but it's it's like in the rest of cycling it's up to entrepreneurs within the Within the, who operate within the sport, managers and, and people who can go and find sponsors and, and direct teams and own teams. So it's up to them to to carry it through for, on behalf of the UCI. Um, and so, it, you know, hopefully, and it's, it's going to be a slow progress and it's not going to be something that's going to happen overnight, but I think it will happen um, 
over the next couple of years that it'll get to a much higher level. Like I say, it's never going to be at the level of, of men's Tour de France or like that, but it'll be at a lot higher level and with a lot more interest from the media that there is today. Yeah. In the the other question in relation to e-bikes and you know and and, and that sort of stuff, I I really don't know whether it's something that the UCI should be into. I think maybe the e-bikes, like you know, I mean, e-mountain bikes are very popular, and and, and and e-bikes on the road are very popular, but controlling that and controlling and trying to at the end of the day sport is about the athletes and sport is about you know the best athletes competing against the best athletes the bike is only the bike is is only a tool for cyclists to use to try and who provide or give us the best who the best cyclist is Um, and that's why they're you know the bike is fairly well controlled by by the uci and most of the 20 you know the 20 teams in the world tour all of their bikes are fairly similar, different brands, but there's there's damn all difference in, in them because they're all, you know, um, operating to, to similar rules, regulations, weight limits and all that type of thing, you know. So there's not much you can do to the to the bike. And so therefore, it's the athlete who, who wins the races as such, you know, um, by and large. Yeah. Um, whereas with e-bikes, you know, it depends on the different level and the different levels of power. And, and you know, and, and, and to be honest with you, I, I, I'm, I'm not... I never really was a very huge technical person, so I don't <laughs> fully understand how they operate, how the, the different bikes operate, and the different motors and all that type of thing. Yeah. Um, it, you know, if, if if it can be, if the UCI can can regulate it and improve it, um, because there are more and more people using e-bikes, um, and and have a a, a you know a, a com, a competition, a series of com, com competitions and so forth, which uh, can produce. Um, good athletes and help help you know people who might not otherwise be in the sport. Well, then so be it. Yeah. In relation to the other one, in, in you know the, the Zwift and all that sort yeah. of stuff on on the reality stuff and all that type of you know training <laughs> in, in guys, I, I really don't think it's something you should be getting involved in. But uh, who knows? You know, obviously the, the the people who are involved in it, the people who, who run these like Zwift and all that, are very uh, keen to be linked with with the real competition and linked with the UCI and so forth um, to give them credibility. But I really don't know whether yeah. that's, whether, whether that's, it's just to me, it's another, it's a huge advancement on, of, of, of riding on the rollers for training, but that's as far as it should go. Thank God you said that. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> I'm a firm believer in it, exactly the same thing. It's like, yeah, it's great, but no, it's not. Don't, consider it a actual legit competition so um just before i let you go what what's your current cycling like life like um i i I think i saw a past guest bill humphreys uh was over there for the tour of ireland reunion which you were a part of uh what do you get time on the bike or things like that i do yeah well i'm sort of semi-retired now living in the south of france and uh, we run a little tourism business here myself and my wife and it enables me to get out of my bike three or four times a week and I managed even to ride up, uh, I was 70 in September, and in June, I rode, along with three of my sons, up Mont Ventoux, which is the oh. first time I'd ever cycled up it. I'd ridden, <laughs> been in races and followed up cars and everything, followed races up it many times, but never actually cycled up it, you know. So I managed to do that in June, 
and I was delighted with myself. And, and so I get out a couple of a couple of hours a week and I enjoy getting on the bike. Well, awesome. Well, Pat, first of all, thank you again for your time. I can only imagine how much, those, how stressful those years were um, trying yeah. to work in the sport and being that, probably that unfortunate scapegoat or, the, you know, they have you in the crosshairs yeah. if anything goes wrong with somebody exactly. else doing something exactly. wrong. Exactly. So, yeah, uh, yeah, but as I said, it was stressful. And when I came out of it all, I was sort of, I mean, obviously I wasn't, I wasn't happy to lose by an election the way I did. Yeah. Um, but there were a lot of stories behind that, but I'm not going to go into them now. <laughs> but um, I then said to myself, right now, my health is the most important thing for me now. I get it back. And uh, so I've been concentrating on that since. Awesome. Well, once again, are. thank you very much. Okay. All the best. Good talk to you. Hey, you too. Take and care. I hope, you, hope your listeners enjoy it. Oh, okay, I'm the sure they will. I'm sure they will. Thanks again. So there you are. Approachable. It, it was a conversation about a guy who has been involved with cycling since, you know, just out of diapers and, and, and is still involved in cycling. And he cares about the sport. And he's been through some hard times with it and been the center of the crosshairs for many years. And I think that can, that can hit you hard. And, and it seems like he's come out of it pretty well. Enjoyable podcast, if you ask me. And you didn't. So, Whatever. Do not forget this Saturday, October 26th, Pat Bulger, this guy, will be live at the Bike Hub in Spokane, Washington with Todd Shumlick. And if I screwed up his last name, he can make fun of me on the show. And speaking of the show, thanks, you guys. Keep the uh, thumbs up coming. Keep the kudos coming. And be sure and be a part of the live podcasts themselves. Gooder Sunglasses. Don't forget Gooder. Gooder is a part of our podcast now, and we now have product that we will be giving away. Yes, giving away to people who are willing to call in during the trivia and test their knowledge of useless information about bikes and bike racing. If you guys haven't checked out Gooder, gooder.com, G-O-O-D-R.com. You've probably seen Ashton Lambie. Yeah, world record holder. Oh, yeah, two-time world record holder. He sports these shades. They are brilliant designs. These guys get the freaking joke the names of some of their of all their glasses are hilarious their website's hilarious and the prices are absolutely unbelievable you guys i'm not shitting you i bought these glasses out of my own pocket before i even approached them about being involved in this podcast the most expensive pair i found on their website was 35 dollars. pause for effect 35 dollars Get over there and check them out at Gooder.com. Thanks for those guys for being a part of our podcast. And I know I shouldn't have held the ads off till the end because you guys are probably just going to sh- turn shit off. But you guys, go over to check out Jake and the gang over at Fit for Hope. Get Fit for Hope. Really. .com. Train for a reason. Get motivated and get out there. Thanks to both of those organizations for being a part of this podcast. Keep the feedback coming. Follow our YouTube channel. Subscribe to the podcast. Stitcher, Spotify, what's the other one? iTunes. (laughs) And be sure and uh, check us out Monday evenings at 6 p.m. We will be live on Mixler. See you next week. Well, I won't see you. You'll hear me. Yeah, I won't hear you because, well, unless you call. Shutting up now. I'm going to go drink my beer. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.